This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning. Hey, good morning. What's going on? Good morning, brother, Dr. Carr. <laughs> Look, I didn't add an honorific. <laughs> no, right. Your well, brother is the one, not doctor. It's Greg. What's going on? It's Reed Daniels' favorite. How are you doing, sweetheart? I am enjoying life. I am grateful to be alive. The yeah. ancestors are good. I have nothing to complain about. All the time, all the time. I apologize. Man, you tell, at 57, it's like, wow. I grew up in an age where you call people sugar and sweetheart. Apparently, that was my first honorific as a child. I called everybody sugar, sugar. Now, I've, I've gotten old enough to realize that that isn't necessarily an honorific in the social structure we live in now. So let me apologize. I just said sweetheart is out immediately. So and them African Southerners. So no, I'm glad to see you though. You know, what's interesting is intentionality matters a bit and that's how it was taken and received, right? So there, there's this dynamic that happens with familial kinship uh, ties that can sometimes create a different context. So, you know, th there's no absolutes in this world. No question, no question. That's a good lesson to learn. <laughs> That's a good lesson to open class with this morning. So I'm so glad to see you. I, I guess our sister is... Uh, exploring another part of the African world, Professor Hunter, huh? As she should. She, I think she deserves a little bit of time. No question. She, she earned it. No question. Well <laughs> earned it. Well earned it. Good morning, Nubians. Everybody is uh, live in Nubia and uh, we're just getting to go. So yeah. Got um, the brothers and sisters and the family coming in. I'm logging into Nubia myself just to make sure. Yes. Because yeah. I'm never usually on this side of things. So, you know. Yes. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you're back. Hopefully this will be uh, the start, well, the continuation, because we did it one other time, but that was that wasn't that long ago. It was a couple of months ago, I guess. A couple of months ago. It was on the uh, the 100th episode. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That yes. So now we can uh, continue like we said we were going to do. So this is a beautiful thing. I'm logging on, too, to see here. And uh with Elon Musk's news, I guess folks were, we talked about it Monday night a little bit over here. People were saying, oh yeah, we got to join Nubia. It's like, okay, now if y'all coming over here, y'all know that's something else. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I, I remember I was watching that uh, part of that conversation on Monday and it's true. You, you know, this is a space that was intentionally created uh, to be a, one of black owned. So that's just a huge distinction there alone, but to also um, not do business as usual. And to create a new thing. So I, I, when Ureas said that there was an uptick in folks who were uh, participating in new, signing up for narrative, signing up for Nubia, that um, was interesting because I wonder what type of folk. And I love the fact that there is a bit of a gateway, right? Because everybody couldn't go to Wakanda. Um, there's a gateway. You got to go through narrative. The, the education is sort of the portal to the community. And I love the way that that's set up. I think it's a great feature that distinguishes this space from from all the others. And they, they may not know that yet, but they'll figure it out once they get here. They'll figure it out. I mean, we're all figuring it out as we go. That's right. They'll figure it out. Folks say, okay, this is different. Yeah, this is where we're supposed to be. As we say, individuals don't beat institutions. So, I mean, what's going on over there at uh, MEC? Y'all still rocking and doing the thing over there? Still doing a thing, trying to figure out the uh, complexities of Black leadership that may not necessarily be aligned with the needs of Black people, you know, trying to... Uh... Uh -oh. <laughs> figure out how to advocate in that space. It's an interesting dilemma, my brother, because, um, you know, we for a long time thought that representation was the thing. And uh, I'm just not convinced that it is. 
Well, we know we know that. I mean, we know it's not. We well, we had expectations we probably shouldn't have had. Well, maybe that first couple of generations, I think they may have had different different lenses. Some more of them. Maybe some Negroes always been Negroes. I thought about you the other night. Uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. You know, they had that black uh, deputy police chief that they got rid of, and he's charged race. I guess he came back last week in the episode and they were like well you're not a cop anymore no uh, i'm gonna be deputy mayor in the new administration i thought to myself wow eric Ad eric adams got copaganda on special victims unit <laughs> it's insane it's insane but you know i think this gives us a real opportunity so it, that's existing at the city level it, it's existing at the new york state level as well and i get the um I'm aligning with some people and co you know, coalitioning with some folks and some amazing groups who are really changing the framework. And so it's not because we're realizing that our community, you know, we don't have the culture politically to hold our elected officials accountable in the way today that I think we may have had a few generations ago. There's some different um some different attractions that are pulling on the energies of elected officials, some different uh things that you can get benefits, quite frankly, from participating in the system. So it's been a real interesting opportunity to learn how to hold our people accountable when our people are sitting in seats of power that were designed to intentionally destroy black communities. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic, but it's, I think, a part of the learning curve of figuring out how to integrate <laughs> into this political structure as black people while maintaining a sense of duty and obligation that centers black people yes yeah we're, we i mean we're, we're part of the system because we're in it so how do we interface with it how do we interact with it that is there are no easy answers and we got to live in the place i mean you and i and, and folks in nubia and you know a handful of folk who you know, struggle to pay our rent and our mortgages and to meet our bills like everybody else. But then there, the majority of our people are living much more precariously, as we know. So it's wonderful to think as revolutionaries and to think and plan and plot and try to execute that. But then we realize that, you know, our people who are living from day to day, as Stevie said, living just enough for the city, they need some some material things right now. That's and, right. You know, That's so right. it's, it's always uh, we can be right. As uh, Ben Jealous was writing about, I think his uh, grandmother, was it, just made transition. I think she's like wow. five. And he was saying, you know, of course, he comes out of Virginia and spent a lot of time in Mississippi, as we know. And he said it's, it's one of his grand things grandmother used to say uh, because she knew her grandmother, I think, came out of enslavement in Virginia. But anyway, she said he said she, she used to tell him, well, you can be right and few of y'all be right or you can win. Now, if you have to pick between being right and winning, what you going to do? <laughs> she said, I would rather win. I mean, and that, that isn't to say we compromise our values, as we know. But I mean, it's more complicated than it appears on the surface. You know, so it is. Yeah. And those of us who are trying to win also got to make sure those wins are presented, I think, to the community in a way that's palatable. Right. If you if you are one of the folk who is, you know, got more months than money at the end of the month and mm. you know, having been there. <laughs> right. Work exactly. yes. there. Um, you know, it's hard for you to tell me to come out and you know engage in this protest or you know vote for this candidate when I'm trying to keep my lights on. And so I think that duty is also incumbent upon those of us who are trying to to, to make that win uh, connected to the needs of our community to do so in a way that empowers the community to meet those needs 
mm. while engaging in, in some sort of political or other form of activism. Um, my friend always says we have to be doctor and patient at the same time. Shout out to Brother Mike Harper. Uh, so while we are in the process of diagnosing the issues, we are also having to create the conditions where we can heal from not the diagnosis for the community, but for the diagnosis for us. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. No, that's it. And healing. Yeah, before we, we went live, y'all, Larry and I, we were talking a little bit. I asked her about this week um, on your show where you've been engaged in this question of reparations. And of course, at the center of that is repair and that healing dimension, which we can't and shouldn't and shouldn't want to ask anyone else to do for us because they can't do it for us. And, and I mean, you know, how how was that this week? Yeah, you had begun to tell me, and then we said, "Oh wait, let's just press live so we can share it with everybody." Right. As Karen would say, "Don't spill the seed before Don't the spill seed. seed." Right? <laughs> no question. No you question. You know, uh, brother Carl, I had the amazing, amazing, amazing Nakichi Taifa um, attorney on, and as always, anytime I get a chance to engage with her, it is a blessing. And one of the things that she mentioned that was sort of a consistent theme was that we determined what the repair needs to be. Yes. This this uh, this fight for reparations, you know, we've got this new Harvard report out now. We've got all of these sort of elements. We've got what's happening in California uh, with the commissioners, the commissioner who is looking to, as you well know, having testified, yeah. uh, the, determine what reparations would look like for that state. We've got Evanston, Illinois. And one of the things that, that attorney uh, Taifa said was that the, the, it is those who bore the harm that get to determine what the repair looks like. Mm. And it's curious, we have all a lot of conversation about uh, reparations and about the harm that our communities have suffered. You know, even in New York City, we have the Racial Justice Commission that's seeking to, you know, and that, that was some work <laughs> as a commissioner, that has been some work. But ultimately, you know, the question I, I guess I, I kind of have is at what point do we hear from the voices of the community as to what that harm looks like outside of, you know, the, the hearings where people get to testify, you know, we're getting reports from major institutions that are doing their evaluation, but I'm curious as to what spaces we are proactively curating outside of, you know, narrative, um, where we are determining and engaged in some, some disciplined inquiry, uh, with some methodologies and some assessments as to what that harm, how that harm has been borne by us and what we determine is necessary for our healing and repair. I'm just letting that those observations and that question wash over me. I'm sitting here jotting notes as you're talking. I'm again, um, just in the process of we had to have these spaces as we as we you just said. I mean, narrative, Nubia the independent spaces that it joins, because there are so many different spaces. And one of the beautiful things about this space is that it is a network in a sense, because so many people are coming in who are involved in other very deliberate self-determining spaces. So, and sharing their experience and sharing our experiences and, and building that momentum. What does that look like? Um, you mentioned the Harvard report and, you know, we just kind of, exchanged a couple of messages about that maybe talking about that today because that dropped a couple of days ago they had a conference yesterday in cambridge um gathered together a bunch of experts and scholars and folk who have written on the report very um wow i said very before i had the other word <laughs> i started to say very interesting and i'm like no mildly interesting uh very uh revealing but not really if you know anything about the history in fact i was laughing because uh Oh, I thought I pulled it. Um, Craig Stephen Wilder wrote a book 
some years ago. Oh, here it is called Ebony and Ivy. Hold on, because I've been moving books around to um, race, slavery, and the troubled histories of America's universities. And he goes into the Ivy League. And so if you know anything about the history of enslavement in the Ivy League, you know, Craig Stephen Wilder wrote about it in the broad sense. So Harvard coming out, and I said this to Faraji Muhammad the other day, he, he has shown Roland's network, the Black Star Network, and they asked me about it. And I said, well, you know, it, it, my first reaction was virtue signaling. This is virtue hoarding, Harvard being Harvard. And Harvard, you know, the, the first Ivy League school, as we know, to engage in a kind of retrospective kind of self-examination on enslavement and a relationship to the institution was Brown. That's right. You know, and uh, and we know, have you ever crossed paths? With, I've never got a chance to sit with Ruth Simmons. I don't know if you've ever met her or been in the same room with her. Interviewed, but never in oh, the same room. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. did talk to her. Yeah, well, there was a, um, uh, oh man, I'm, I'm gonna forget the name of the sister. Um, Professor Tyson, I, I forget her first name, but she had a reparations and repair conference uh, at the start of this year. Um, oh, I'm gonna, it, it's gonna bug me. I'm gonna find her name so I can drop it because she should be acknowledged. And uh, Ms. Simmons was a part of that conversation. So I got a chance to sit and bask in the glory of that. Uh, and they tore it up. They tore it up, as I'm sure you are not surprised. No, not at all. I mean, Ruth Simmons, of course, what a trailblazer. And no, pause. Again, I mean, you know, after all these years in Africana studies and, and really Africana studies, not that study of Blacks stuff that is being passed off as Africana studies, which is absolutely not Africana studies. The language, the whole the whole point of change, she's, she's a trailblazer in the social structure. But in terms of governance, like yourself, like Nkichi, I mean, you know, I used to tell Chokwe Lumumba and, and all Maddox all the time. I said, y'all, the way y'all move through the world with law degrees makes me almost say I wish I had jumped in and continued to fight that fight. But I'm like, nah, nah. But but when I hear you and then in Kichi, and you know, I'm saying, okay, yeah. When I see Ruth Simmons, I say, okay, you can lead an academic institution in a way that uh, changes something. And she did that at Brown. She's done that at Williams. She's done it. And then of course she retires and they're like, thank you. And she's like, yeah, okay, watch this. Now she a Prairie View. <laughs> you know I'm, I'm going to the HBCU. Why y'all thought, you know, where you, what you do is not the center of my world. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And she came out of Africana studies. I mean, she built a very strong academic, uh, African studies program at Brown. Shout out to our brother and my friend, Corey, uh, Walker, who she recruited. And then Corey left Brown after she did, and he went to Winston-Salem State uh, to chair that, uh, not only to be the dean at Winston-Salem State. And of course, now he's at Wake Forest. But I saw all his background to, to really say something about the, the kind of presence of a Ruth Simmons, a Black woman with deep roots in Louisiana, in Texas, in that quote unquote Ivy League world in the social structure and academia, white academia, calling to account an institution and saying, what can be done? And ultimately, I think there was about $10 million that they put together at Brown, $2 million uh, that was raised outside of the Brown uh, endowment and budget. And then eight million was contributed out of Brown directly for infusion into kind of, I don't want to call it reparative, 
Um, I don't want to call it comp compensatory. Certainly not with a lawyer like you want. It's not compensation. Uh, redress in some ways. Uh, they put money in the public schools there in Rhode Island. They did some other things. Um, but I think you raised something, Larry, that we have to grapple with. How we determine what reparations is and how we build who we are. Yesterday, President Simmons was on one of the panels at this Harvard conference they had kind of officially kicking off or debuting the report that they had released a couple of days before. And there was a companion film they showed, a little 20-minute film. Uh, the young sister who was in Blackish, and then what's the one where she goes to the uh, Grownish? I guess it is. Right, she's in the film. Uh, Vincent Brown, historian at Harvard, a lot of the academics, and that Gordon Reed, who said something very interesting. I want to mention in a moment, in terms of something that she got involved in, in terms of a committee they put together the law school because the symbol of the law school at Harvard uh, had these sheaves of wheat on them on it which was a gesture toward the uh, one of the donors who, who had enslaved people. And so there was this whole debate about whether to keep the seal of the Harvard Law School. And I'll come back to that in a second. But and there was a number of people on this panel. Sven Burkett, who had started research as early as 2007, a professor, um, probably if, if you know the name at all, Burkett's most prominent or well-known book is probably his book empire of cotton which is one of the books which informs the 1619 project you know what's the relationship of labor of african people and the creation of these material resources to the establishment not only of the united states but the plantation economies that basically built the settler colonies of the western hemisphere as we know as our brother howard french has um, been an invaluable kind of discussant and writer and thinker on this of late, particularly for us in, in Nubia and narrative in his book, Born in Blackness. But so, so they had this conference and Ruth Simmons is there and the interlocutor, uh, the person who was kind of discussing with her as she made a, uh, some remarks about what she was trying to do at Brown and what she imagines this kind of self-examination could do at, at, at Harvard, among other things, was Henry Louis Gates, of course, the, the uh, very uh very prominent academic um now documentary filmmaker uh, author i'll use the phrase public intellectual well, you know i think the actually i think yesterday the conference was closed out by my friend ibram kendi again how to be anti-racist this whole conversation so the whole thing framed in some ways around these kind of polls it was a professor from from howard there actually and uh so they brought people from all over the country, all over the world, mostly Harvard people, though. I think the, the sister who was kind of like the the North Star to kind of guide through the agenda, opened it and closed it, was Tamiko Brown-Nagin, who we talked about several times here, uh, who just, among other things, wrote the uh, book on Constance Baker Motley that just came out, Civil Rights Queen. She's the dean of uh, Ratcliffe, of course, which is at one time the women's college at Harvard. But at any rate, it was interesting listening to uh, Professor Simmons, Dr. Simmons, uh, President Simmons, rather, and uh, Dr. Gates, because the the whole idea of what a legacy of enslavement means is complicated, 
layered, problematic, perhaps even perhaps even in intractable in terms of any quote unquote deep resonant solutions that don't come from us. But of course, what is us? And I thought about it listening to Henry Louis Gates. I'm laughing because Gates gave an interview. I think it was David Remick in the New Yorker a couple of months ago. Where uh, I think what the last question Remick asks him is, I think it was David Remick. It may not have been Remick. But anyway, the interviewer asks Gates, says, um, so what are you trying to accomplish now? What are you trying to do? What you, This whole arc of your life as a public intellectual and talk, telling these black stories and what are you trying to accomplish? And Gates is like, well, you know, I co-teach the Introduction to African-American Studies class at, at Harvard. And I laugh because it's not African-American studies. I mean, it is the study of black stuff. But again, Africana studies has to have its own methodology, its own disciplinary language. And what we've been doing for the last couple of years right here and what we're just beginning to do. And I hear now we hear the language echoing everywhere. You know, this, this a, a kind of basic set of questions, which then open up into the universe of possibilities. Those six basic questions, uh, an Africana studies framework. And this isn't the only Africana studies framework. This one draws on all the others. But. Uh, the question of who are Africans to other people, social structure. I think very much the Harvard uh, legacy of slavery report, film, conference, uh, related documents, all of the stuff, the, the, the pledge of $100 million from Harvard's $52 billion, uh, and at least that's their endowment. I mean, I don't even say their resources. It's much greater than that in terms of resources. Uh, so $100 million is a lot of money till you look back and realize how much money Harvard has and makes. But the all of that is social structure. Who are Africans to other people? Brilliant, insightful analysis, critiques, but ultimately resolving itself into a structure that is part of a social structure and a structure that prides itself on being a leader in training future generations to continue to manage this social structure, albeit with some adjustments. Maybe you can call them reform, certainly not revolution or anything like that. But at any rate, that first African states question is the social structure question. Who are Africans other people? The second question, which is really the question, but in order to get to the second question, we have to uh, at least acknowledge the first question because in acknowledging and establishing that first question, that social structure question, we are engaged in a very important step, not the destination, but a preliminary step. Because as you say, Larry, we live in a society that orders our steps, that orders our lives, regardless of how we move through the world as individuals, as communities, as collectives, we are still in a structure that we didn't, we don't control, that that relies on us to maintain itself. But in order to maintain itself in a certain way, in terms of a kind of asymmetrical relationship, hierarchical relationship, many ways, oppressive relationship, lethal relationship for us, right? It, it requires a certain type of invisibility. So that first question, who are Africans to other people? forces us to grapple and it to grapple with whiteness but it doesn't become the it doesn't become the the purpose of our work and the only other thing i'll say right quick of those other six categories um ways of knowing how do african people look at the world and the universe science technology what are we using to uh, what do we use for our purposes what do we adapt what do we create uh movement and memory as we go through the, uh, our lives and go on through generation to generation how do we remember certain moments in our collective experiences cultural meaning making what art music culture do we create in any specific time to mark our place there all of those categories empty into the second question which is the governance question who are we to each other and that is the question that is not 
and should not be and really cannot be at in the Harvard report because Harvard isn't ours. Watching the film and all these uh, black scholars, black celebrities, black public intellectuals saying, we, how do we grapple with the leg our legacy at Harvard? How do we, and I'm just laughing, who is we? Why y'all keep saying we, are oh, y'all working at Harvard? Well, not only that, you have something at Harvard you want. Anyway, but let me pause there because you came back and jump in, please. <laughs> Go explore this. Brother Carr, I have so many questions right now. How Karen does this, where she can talk with you and not just pepper you with the questions. And I committed to myself and to Nubia, I would not do this. But I just got to sit right here because you said that first question, who are we to others? Who are African people to other people? You said that is not the destination. Uh, that's just a, a, a by stop on the journey. But one of the things that I'm beginning to wrestle with is this concept that beca perhaps because of the way the injury has been perpetuated, for mm -hmm. a lot of us, part of the sickness of internalized white supremacy, whatever label we want to put on it, is seeing that first question, who are we to other people as the destination? Yeah, literally fashioning our entire culture, our survival mechanisms, what we pride, what we value, what we train our children to value and to seek after is all to make that first question, who are we to other people to fit within and to squeeze and manipulate and contort ourselves, our body, our culture, our minds into making that the destination. Who are we to other people and how do we become more palatable to other people? Because in doing that, part of the sickness causes some of us to believe that that is a source of, of power, of being able to repair ourselves in the eyes of other people. And that becomes sort of the, as my sister would say, the sonum bunum, that becomes our, our, soul, <laughs> yes. our soul effort. Our soul Teach. goal is to make ourselves more palatable and acceptable to other people, forgetting that there's five other questions that we need right. to consider that would fill out our framework so much so that that first question which it sounds like is the one question that Harvard was asking, right? Okay. And, I, and I put this in the private chat. I hated to quibble with a hundred million dollars, but seriously, Harvard, really, a hundred million dollars. We and know it ain't like you know it is. No question, you're not gonna get it's Harvard's money. It's gonna stay at Harvard, right? Right. So that how do we and, and as we're thinking about what reparations look like and again, going back to attorney uh, Nikichi Taifa's uh, question or a statement that we determine what the repair is and what that repair looks like. If so much, many of us are stuck trying to answer that question as if resolving that question would indeed resolve our issues as a community. What are the pathways for us making sure that we realize, no, y'all, this is just question number one. And this ain't even necessarily the most important question. Don't go, don't go anywhere. Cause I mean, like I say, we, we this is a conversation. We always have conversations. So we got I'm I'm loving this. And thank you because you you're peeling this back. Um when we came up with that African States framework, they're really the, the two questions, well, there's really only one question. The one question is governance. Who are we to each other? Those, the four, the, 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 the categories after that all feed the governance question. So when we say, who are we to each other? The question is, what are our ways of knowing in the world? What are the different ways we understand the world and how do we discuss, debate wherever we are in the world and throughout history and time and now? The science technology is the same thing. How do we use, so we think about the birth of hip hop, we're using turntables, we're talking about speakers out of the crib, whatever. That's all science technology. You know, the inventors, all that stuff. The uh, movement and memory, key. How as we move through time and space do we create these markers 
that allow us to have a we that doesn't begin with our birth and end with our death. So the place that you work, and I say this every time I'm on that campus, it really, it does something to me to walk into an auditorium and see a picture of Mega Wiley Evers and then know that this place came into existence because at, when you, you can't go to Mega Evers College and not be in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, That's Ocean right. Hill, Brownsville, Baba Jr. Right. where you see the East, all this is Brooklyn, Evans oh. Field right down the street. I mean, this is movement and memory. And then when you see young people or old people, anybody walking through that space who don't know that, we have failed. <laughs> education is part of movement and memory you shouldn't walk into a place and so harvard is doing what harvard needs to do for its movement and memory but its movement and memory isn't connected to the governance structure it's connected to the social structure and this is why we, we created that curriculum uh framework out of a high school class that we have in philadelphia the mandatory african-american states high school class they have history high school class, not even african-american states but what we came in with we can't create just a me too history class and this is Africana studies, it's not history. So we had debates for a whole summer, just debating, and I'm sitting there listening, you know, I throw a question out, or somebody throw a question out, we argue, and meanwhile, you're not talking now, because I'm sitting here thinking, how are we gonna reconcile it? And I'll never forget the day we arrived at that social structure question. We were debating, and I, you know, we've, we had this conversation before, but I'll just say it very quickly. Um, we were debating some, actually, oh man, I thought I just, there's a new book that came out. Oh, I don't uh, put it somewhere. I just got it. It's called The Book of Negroes. This whole, well, you know, you, you, and you know it. A lot of people know that book after the so-called Revolutionary War, the British are meeting in New York with the Continental Congress Army. And they have promised all these Africans, if y'all fight for us, we're going to free y'all. Of course, they reneged on a whole bunch of it because they are reneggers. But at, at any rate, they sent some of them to uh, Sierra Leone. They took some of them to Caribbean, re-enslaved them. Some of them they did take to Canada. But they had this ledger where they had the names of these African people, their occupations. And these were the people they're going to take with them, so-called Book of Negroes, the Book of Negroes. And I think Lawrence Hill wrote a book called Somebody Knows My Name, kind of a fictional account. Uh, BET once did a mini series on it, you know, the sister. With Anjanu Ellis. Yeah. Yes. You know, right? so we're having this debate about the Book of Negroes. And one brother, Daoud Malik Watts, my dear brother, great historian. I mean, just he's sitting there arguing. We can't do the Book of Negroes. About it. And then and part of the argument, somebody said, I forget who said this, it's like, why do we care who them people thought we were? And then, so after that day, I'll never forget, I went over, I went somewhere else in Philly, I'm in Philly, I drove, and I just started saying, okay, now how are we going to get, because what we knew was any course at any university, at any high school, any K-12 that's dealing with us is going to probably follow the same framework that every conversation with us starts with. Well, they were in Africa. Then slavery, slavery, slavery. Okay, Civil War, emancipation, blah, 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 great migration, blah, 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 civil rights, blah, Barack Obama. Okay, let's go. Wait, that ain't got nothing to do with us. That's what we had to do in the space we found ourselves. So the, so the question then, because the Book of Negroes was key to this, we said, okay, it's got their names, right? So if it's got their names, do we know their stories? Well, we do know someone thinking about, okay, so who are they to each other? Uh, how do we get high school students to ask, okay, we know the names, we know where they went, but now what did they do with each other? Okay, because that ledger is who they are to other people. There it is. And once we got that, we realized nobody really cares what other people think about them. Certainly black people don't care. We only care because we have to survive it. 
But who we are when y'all not looking is a different conversation. And don't come over here if we didn't invite you. Don't come for us because we are in this space. Anyway, I said out to say this. As you ask that question, all human societies have social structures. The reason we came up with a social structure category was that the social structures that predate the invasions of Africa were African social structures. Within those African social structures, you have governance structures, but those governance structures are now tied to who your blood family is, who the people in your village are. who And so there's a social structure and a governance structure question to be had completely independent of this. But once enslavement starts, you start sucking people in, we no longer control those social structures. This is why as we're reading Barracoon this month, and now next week and the week after we finish, what we see Kasula uh, is doing coming out of in, out of Africa, he's describing these African social structures, these African social structures that he got pulled into. And, and, and shout out to Adesoje, for those of you who are not in Nubia, if you're not yet in Nubia, this will be, you know, as you all know, we are engaging in a month-long read of Barracoon, which, of course, is the book that is based on the uh, testimony of this brother right here, Kostula, uh, Kujo, so-called Kujo Lewis, um, who was 19 years old when he was taken from Africa. He and some of his family and a lot of different people he did not know, taken out of the port at Wida, one of the largest ports for the trade of human, human beings in Africa at the time. And I say shout out to our brother, uh, our Yoruba brother, who is uh, in London, um, who came in on Monday and helped us puzzle through some of the language in this text as it relates to this brother, beginning with his name, Kosla. And he, I raised that because when you ask, you know, that question about social structure and governance structure, he is, he has his own governance structure. He spends a great deal of his talk with Zora Neale Hurston talking about his governance in his village, in his family his rites of passage, his ways of knowing that come out, the, his use of science and technology, how they use his movement and memory. When she asked him about himself, he says, no. In what house do you know the mouse is the leader? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in fact, Prof, some of the way that we talk about, that, that Kasula talks about his life should be very familiar. Well, you think about, I mean, does any of that resonate? Oh, there, there's Urias. Hey, Urias. <laughs> What's up, Baba? <laughs> Urias runs uh, office hours on Monday night. But no, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Larry. I you mean, know, I, I, I dropped this in the chat, and I keep forgetting that our chat is not the Nubia chat. So I got the Nubia chat going on my phone, and then I'm, I'm chatting to you. You but should that, go anywhere. You stay there. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that part of the conversation reminded me a lot of Maladoma Somme. When he talks about, I think it was in Healing Wisdom of Africa, no, of Water and Spirit, uh, where he talks about his experiences, you know, being a, a the son of a chieftain, 
uh, in the community, in an African community that had not been very interrupted with colonization and, and white nationalism until the missionaries come. And the missionaries right. come, they convince his father to send him to the missionaries. So he's with the missionaries and he describes, you know, the abuse he experienced. And really, for me, it was like, what happened to black people in one generation? Like we, we often think about slavery in like a series of, you know, successive generations, but his story is what happened in one generation. They find the missionaries or the missionaries bring him to the school. He misses his initiation, Dr. Carr. My and so one, he he ends up getting a fight in the mission, you know, in the mission. Uh, he whoops one of the mission, the, the father's behinds and like ends up running home. But now he has aged out uh, in the oh. European context. So in the European governing structure, he is a man, but he goes back home. He's never been initiated. He's still a boy. He can't interact with the adults as a man. He can't really interact with the kids. He is almost... He has no place in that social structure because he missed out on the technology training. He missed yeah. out on the spiritual training, on the wisdom. And he talks about African technology, where his mother, who he says could shapeshift. So she wasn't walking in her human legs down to the river. She was shapeshifting into another being that would allow her to get there more quickly and do what she had to do. And but and it occurred to me, I was like, is this magic? Well, it's African technology. That's right. And it, it shows up in that way, but he had to be initiated and go through the entire initiation process. A grown man being initiated with young boys before he could be considered a man in his society. And that existed independent of what the missionary said. It existed independent of what the white people's rules about, you know, when you reach a certain age, you're going to be an adult. If you ain't been initiated into manhood, you are a non-entity in this society until the African governing structure that birthed you is going to help you transition into these phases. So I, I just, it was a connection for me in, during that conversation no, about Kasula. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Don't go anywhere. No, don't go anywhere because I think what you put your finger on is exactly what we have to stay focused on. I think you, you put your finger on exactly what we said. I mean, how many times have we heard versions of what Baba Somme said, now an ancestor, recent ancestor? Uh, I think about Aikwe Arma who said something very similar. His parents were school teachers in, in, the, in the colonial structure that was set up. But in his village, his, his elders, all this, he was very much engendered and grounded in that culture. And then, of course, they sent him off to school. And he eventually cycles through Groton, Harvard himself. And Armagh, who is now, of course, in synagogue with Per Ankh and his own independent institution, which we would consider uh, Nubia and narrative to be uh, part of kind of modeling ourselves on some of what he's doing at Per Ankh. Again, Black institutions created by Black people. He says, when I went to school, they was like, what y'all was doing in the village? That wasn't civilization. In fact, he's got a chapter in his book, The Eloquence of the Scribes, where he says, you know, uh, go going to meet Shakespeare. And when I got there, they told me, Shakespeare. Shakespeare is the prophet. What y'all doing is not even culture. And of course, Nelson Mandela and Kunu coming out of his Kosa training. You know, he comes out, they say, he'd send him to school, to the white man's school, and the white lady school teacher gives him a name, Nelson. So even when we say Nelson, they don't say Nelson's Madiba or, or his clan name, you know, but in the governance structure, but who are you to other people? You're Nelson. And we think we're doing him a favor. But when you raise this, um, the question of science and technology, and of course, I think about Jacob Carellis used to always talk to us about and then send us to the uh, to the lexicon, right? Liddell and Scott, the Attic Greek. So we got to go and look for these words. And then Theobald Bingo started teaching us Greek. We learning from the grammar. We understand techne. And then the, the, the question of science is almost like a way of knowing. Techne is the application of that way of knowing. So even we had these categories, ways of knowing and science and technology, technically, we probably could have dropped science 
and put science over there in ways of knowing because technique is just basically applied science. <laughs> so as you said, when so May is talking about his mother and those women and the women, they are scientists, but the science isn't in that Western Cartesian kind of dualism. No, we, these plants talk to us. You can't understand George Washington Carver. If you don't understand, Africana means these. I know what these plants can do because I get up in the morning and they tell me. They say, oh, this is mystic. No, it's mystic in your society because you stay trying to separate. And so I set out to say this in terms of uh, uh, prelude. By the time we see Kasula, and he's 19, as we know, in Barracoon, he has been initiated in one step, but he is just on the verge. He can't now. He's about to get married. He wants to get married now. He's starting to talk about it. And as he sees this girl he likes, his father talks to the other people. And now the families have to talk because you don't just, you, you all like that girl, how that girl look. That don't mean nothing. Okay. And, and the man tells his father, he said, your son started looking around these girls. Well, we used to say he's smelling himself now. So now let's get ahead of this. It's time for your initiation. Because what we don't do is just go out here hollering at people. <laughs> and you don't even get to pick, really. We're going to pick. But anyway, I started to say this. There's a moment in, in, in Barracoon where he's sitting in that circle. And he's allowed to stay. And, and Larry, I wonder if you remember the first couple of times, maybe even the first time you were allowed to stay. In other words, these other women are here. Now, you can't talk, but we're not going to make you leave. And so now you really, and then there's a moment when the, when the elder brother looks at him and says, okay, you're beginning to come in, but at this moment, you're not yet in. And I can tell you what to do because, and here's the line, all men are your fathers. And so all women are your mothers. All men are your father. And those people, what about your blood relative? No, no, no. And what Somay is really raising is I'm in that between space. I'm not yet with you all, but I'm not, I don't have to leave the room. But when they snatched me, they took me out of this development and they put me in their development, which is not the same, but they have their own hierarchies of initiation. And now we have, we have mistaken our governance formations. We've commingled them with theirs, as you say, and that really speaks to the large one. Anyway, but I'm wondering if you remember that when you didn't have to get off the porch or you didn't have to get out the room. <laughs> a very special moment when the aunties let you just sit there, not to be a vibrant part of the conversation, <laughs> just there to soak it in. And you just be glad that you got to sit because, you know, it, it separates you from the little kids. Right. They can't even be in that space. So you you have this. It, it is its own uh, initiation, its own rite of passage. And when we think about, you know, you'd said something at the very, very beginning, you know, yeah, you were never going to slavery. And then that right. becomes the dominant story. One of the things my husband does is he has these two collages that looks at our history from 1690 or 1503, if you're talking about Latino, Afro-Latino, Spanish, uh, until now. And it's depressing and it's terrible. And then the kids are like, oh, yeah, I recognize that. There go Harriet Tubman. They go. But then the next slide is a collage of the 200,000 years of peopledom in Africanity. And it's a completely different thing, but they have no idea because they were snatched, right? So we are literally living that metaphor, being snatched in this interrupted, you know, having our, our development be disrupted, given this structure that says, here's the most important elements of your history. And when you say, no, you got not thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, oh, hundreds of thousands of years of existing, creating, producing, geniusing are all over the, the continent, the world. 
And that is a completely different learning experience. So being in that room with the aunties for the first time, mm. it's sort of like being exposed to the fact that there is way more to who we are and what capacity we have than I had been privy to in that very uh, junior state, my, my pre-initiation, I guess I would say. Yeah. And, and they're preparing you for the next level when you do get to speak. When they, and, they, and, they, and then the next level, I mean, and you know, as someone who doesn't have any biological children, talking to you who do who do who do, do have biological children, there certainly we know governance formation in Africa. Until you have a biological child, you cannot be an adult. Now, and now the irony in that, of course, is that there are, however, other roles that can allow you pathways to adulthood, but they come with a certain type of expectation. For example, my friend Daniel Black, man at Clark Atlanta University, he wrote an incredible novelist. His book, The Coming, is, is so incredible. I mean, he draws on years of research, years of sitting with people of African descent around the world. Just look. And one of the things we see is that, okay, if you come back, as so may might say, back into this physical reality with a certain assignment, okay, you don't have any biological children. Your job, however, is to be the healer. Or your job is to be the memory keeper. So your pathway to adulthood doesn't require necessarily biological children, but it means, however, that what you will come here to do, you have to do that. Because if you're not going to do that, I mean, but it's but it's so complex, as you say. And I know that you know you and your husband, y'all have um, you know been at the center of a curriculum formation, a curriculum movement. One, of course, with those deep roots all over that we have had. We've been fighting to build curriculum since we got snatched, and. When young people in particular grasp that, it just opens everything up. Like you say, I don't want to, I hear these kids all the time, you know, and not just young people, but I don't want to see no more movies about ass whoopings. Neither do I. Why? Because these histories are about, and at the, at the center of the Harvard report is trauma. And then the triumph is all linked to Harvard. Like, I love it. They name all these black people that went to Harvard. Du Bois, Martin Delaney got put out to medical school, Charles Hamilton Houston, Eva Beatrice Dykes. I'm like, I'm I'm an Eva Dykes fan. Eva B. Dykes was no joke. I, we'll talk about her in a minute. But I'm saying, but you're giving yourself credit for them coming there. Everybody I named, with the exception of Delaney, whose parents came out of enslavement, came out of HBCUs. And you gesture toward the HBCUs, but you really want to give yourself the credit for at least being progressive enough to have them come. Anyway, anyway, I, I, I said I'll just say this. When we start talking about reparations, and Nkichi, of course, one of the people who was present near the creation of uh, NCOBRA, National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, those five injury areas that NCOBRA identifies that said, these are the ways we were injured. The first of the five, the second of the five is education, then it's health, then criminal punishment, then wealth and poverty. Those are the four kind of outward facing, dealing with this question of social structure, what we are owed or what we demand. But the first of the five is peoplehood. As you said, nationhood. We not only don't expect that of the social structure, the minute the social structure tries to come in there and say, okay, well, you know, this was a crime. Yes. And in our common humanity, we have stop. Mm -mm. No. Yes, we are all human beings, but we're not going to jump to that conversation because if we jump to that conversation, we are now playing on the social structure ground because your we that you want us to include ourselves in has an invisible center and that invisible center is whiteness. The minute we say we and don't distinguish us from you is the minute that all of our we will be dictated by your we. But and isn't that the goal for them though? Yes, isn't that the goal? Just like 
emancipation as opposed to us taking it, you know, like, like, well, if we give it to you, your freedom can still be on our terms, as opposed to if we taken it, which was happening, right? If we create what the healing looks like, then we can put our little hundred million dollars, which is a drop in our bucket compared to our endowment. But you ain't gonna know that because you don't even know how much money we really got here. But then we can control what the healing looks like. And we can make sure that the healing of you who we acknowledge that we harmed. Yes, we can acknowledge we can also say that the healing you experience will be palatable to us. And so your healing will not require us to endure any harm because yes. God forbid, we should actually feel the pain yes. of, of repairing what we broke. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And how do we, with the idea of our collective interest in mind, and I mean, just not just as a species, but as part of the reality, we live on this ball and while it would be very nice to be the now, just leave us alone. The earth is getting ready to reset and wipe the whole species out because some of the foolishness is going on, right? I mean, so so we're not trying to say we are separate from y'all. We ain't never going. But as you say, that is the goal. The goal is to maintain the institutional power, to maintain the hierarchy. Yeah, we'll let some of you all in. And yeah, you're right. We did a little wrong. And yeah, we're going to set aside $100 million. But then when you read the recommendations, this is what cracks me up. I mean, they had a recommendation on uh, honoring, engaging, and supporting Native communities. Okay, so what exactly does that look like? Because as you say in the film, as you say in the report, you're on stolen land. You giving the land back? Okay, well, very good. No, 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 no. We ain't say we're giving the land back now. We're going to have dialogues. We're going to have symposia. We're going to invite a few Native American children in. Is it okay, all right, all right, well... Uh, okay, well, what about us then? I love this one. Recommendation number three, develop enduring partnerships with black colleges and universities. Now, I don't know, uh, if you ever ran across any of these students. I've, I encountered them at, at, at Howard years ago. There have been a number of, uh, I don't know, did you do at any point in your formal education, did you do any uh, exchange semesters? Like you went to another school for a semester? I did. Uh, I, went, uh, I did. I went to the Dominican Republic. I was supposed to go to the Dominican Republic in Ghana, uh, but I went to the Dominican Republic to explore race in Latin American culture and slavery throughout Latin America. What was that like? Oh, it was dynamic. I had I didn't have a perm. <clears throat> I had just cut off my my perm, so I had I had this. Yeah, um, you had your hair. I had my hair. So well, that, I'm sorry, Kwame Trey would say that's your perm. I, right. love how, I love how Kwame used to say it. Baba Kwame would say, "Oh, I don't understand. Why would you have to do something to your hair? You call that a perm? That's and a temporary. It's a temporary. Your permanent hair is." He was like, oh. "He started laughing." I said, "Damn, that's true." So, so you cut out your temp. <laughs> I cut out my temp and I had my perm. I always say that because I believe that my hair colored my experience because I have light enough brownness in complexion that I was considered that, you know, there's like this whole unique uh, racial category that they've created in the Dominican Republic called Indio. And it's sort of a, you know, a, a cute phrase to use to bypass being black. And there's, you know, internalized white supremacy all over the Caribbean and, and you know, all over the world. This should not be a surprise. No but uh, when my husband, then boyfriend came down to visit, they told him, oh yeah, you're not black, you're Indio. He was like, no, I'm black. And yeah. I was like, you yeah, know, we, we black. <laughs> We had, I'm going to be real quick. We had oh, Brother Todd, this, uh, this mechanic who came, or plumber who came because we had some pipes in the apartment I was staying in. I was staying with three other Americans. And, you know, he's a brother. He not your complexion, you know, hair kinky like mine, you know, a brother, yeah. brother. Like, you know, if he was on the street, his name is easily Uraeus or Rahim. Like, easily, easily. Easily. <laughs> and he asked us where we're from. And my roommate says, you know, I'm American. She was a white girl. 
Uh, she's Mexican-American, pointing to Mexican-American. She's Dominican-American, and she points to me and says she's Black-American. Now, interestingly, she was just American, but wow. she gives all of the descriptions. And he looks at me, he's like, oh, no, this is all in Spanish. She's like, no, 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 you're not Black, you're India. And I knew what was about to happen because I've been there for like, you know, almost a year at this point. I was like, well, no, I, I'm, I'm Black American, just like you're Black Dominican. Oh, no. And then I just waited. And I mean, it was sneaky. I shouldn't have did it. No, that's beautiful. He, he straightens up. And it was like the energy in the room, like the hair on the back. Because I didn't quite know what was about to happen. And he looks at me and he says, my skin may be black but my soul shines white like the sun. I'm like an albino compared to Africans. I am not black. And it was a quick moment. And my roommates who were also there to study their own respective things, they knew it. And it was like, Larisha, <laughs> But it was a very telling moment because viscerally, I was seeing what I had been studying. And it was not much different from, I ain't black, I got Indian in my family. Mm. It was a Spanish version of no, I got good hair. It was like no, no, no. I might you might think I'm black, but really I have all of these other things that take me out of that. So I'm I'm really not that to you. So that example, that experience kind of exemplifies what my travels internationally were like for school. So that just that takes me out. As Du Bois said, the color line belts the world. As you were talking, it's so funny. I'm I'm rereading this. I think I'm gonna have to have a conversation with this brother, Randy Matori, who's down at Duke. He grew up on a campus of Howard. And his father was on faculty at medical school, his, his late father, now an ancestor. And Randy Matori is a brilliant anthropologist. He's down at Duke. He wrote a book called Stigma and Culture, Last Place Anxiety in Black America. And this, this is the book, right, Stigma and Culture. And what he says is in here, he talks about exactly what you've just laid out for us through your direct experience. He says, not only does nobody want to be Black, this nobody wanting to be blackness operates within black communities in ways that are crippling. So he talks about this kind of intra-racial hierarchy. He grew up on the campus of Howard University. So he talks about Howard. He says, I always thought of Howard as a pan-African, you know, we all come together for the race. And then he says, I came back as a scholar and I he came through the history department. He, he had a space there. Shout out to my man, Emery Tolbert, who was the chair of the history department at the time, my man. Uh, Seven Day of Venice, uh, which was also the school of Eva Beatrice Dykes, who's in the Harvard Report. It's interesting how the ancestors work. We'll come back to that in a minute. But what 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 Matori says is, I then began to understand no, because there's a stigma to blackness, and whether you be an African from the Caribbean, an African from the continent, uh, an African from the United States, or for any of those places who is up in the higher class structure. You want to distinguish yourself from them lower class Negroes. So part of the HBCU experience is I'm trying to get away from being stigmatized as being a lower class black. Now, I'm going to reach back and help even the language of reaching back, reaching back where, you know, to them Negroes who I'm no longer like. But he says it also operates in terms of region. So the continental Africans are saying we're not black Americans. The, the, the Africans from the Caribbean said we're not black Americans. And so there's this contempt almost. And he talks about stigma and culture. Nobody wants to be in last place. There's an anxiety from being in last place. But it all operates within a social structure, a field of whiteness. Because whiteness has grouped everybody Black in the Black category. And then he goes to, to, to what you just raised. He goes to Louisiana. He looks at Creole culture, South Carolina. He's talking about how it operates in the Caribbean. So you evoke the DR. 
and how we know that operates or Haiti, all that. And he's saying at the core of this anti-blackness are people who can never escape blackness. So the most virulent rejection they have is of blackness. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I remember when Randy was on campus. This is about maybe about 10 years ago doing his research. And I'm saying, bruh, don't nobody want to hear this? These Negroes will lose their mind again. And I'm thinking about these black folk at Harvard, some of the brilliant scholars. But part of that is I'm Harvard. And so even when I think about the fact that here you are with young folks who want to go into the law, who you've apprenticed, young lawyers, and, you got never, and then we look at, oh, we so proud of Katanji Brown Jackson. Yeah, her clerks all come from Harvard. And yet, you understand that blackness is a complicated, now this is an Africana studies co uh, conversation. So here comes the social structure. Here comes Harvard or Yale or anywhere else. But we like to, oh, oh, talk to the hand. We'll come over there in a minute. This is a governance, this is where, where uh, and we're going to talk about this next Monday, where, where Kassalai, when they come out of the Civil War, the Africans who were born in the United States and their children and their children, they're looking at these Africans who were brought over and they make a distinction. They call them savages. And you see the thing, you see the birth of the thing you're talking about. So, I mean, that isn't where we're going with this in terms of exchange, but this is necessary for us to have this conversation. How do, how do we deal with that internally? How do we address that? So, you know, uh... I don't have an answer to that, but I do know Frederick <laughs> Douglass said. Neither do I. I think it was Frederick Douglass. He said it's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men. Yeah. And you know, there's this concept in the Bible. Uh, I'm a black church girl. <clears throat> That's this is, that was that was my root. So you know, the children of Israel, when the, they tend the ten spies into the promised land to seek out the promised land, then. No, no, the 12 spies, excuse me. 10 of them come back as like, yo, we can't do it. Like we like grasshoppers to them. They big. I know, yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey. Yes, God, that just brought us out of Egypt. Query weather, you know, that's the history. That's all right. We, we, we take it as a narrative of faith. Stop there for now. You know, yes, you know, uh, we know that God can, can deliver this to us, but we are like grasshoppers to them. And in their own mind, this is their own internalized enslavement speaking, in their own mind, they had no capacity to go out and take the land. Leaving aside the politics of going out and taking land that's already occupied. We'll put that to about the that? side. A lot of problematics in these Bible stories, but we got to tease it now. We'll accept it for now. But it's two of the spies, two of the 12 that are like, no, we got this. We, have you seen all the other things that we've been able to accomplish? We can totally do this. They get to go into the promised land. The two, you know, who was it? Uh, I can't remember which one, Joshua and another one. I can't remember which one, but they get to go into the promised land. Yes. And then immediately, because they have the faith and they go. But the 10 that doubted, that continued to embrace that social structure that was yes. foreign and alien to them, yes. they had to wander back in the desert for another 40 years until that whole generation died out. My God. And this oh. is sort of, you know, as I'm now in my 40 fine years, <laughs> like, oh, nice. you know, I'm not going to say which of the fines, <laughs> like, and I'm, that space, I'm realizing that even with my own children, like investing in this generation so that they have all of, you know, we always say, you know, we are our ancestors wildest dreams, but what, who are we to our descendants? And are we going to be able to be their wildest dreams? Are we going to create structures that will allow them to be raised as strong children as opposed to having to repair them as broken adults? Mm -hmm. So when you think, when you ask, you know, what do we do with that? That's one of the reasons I double down and invest on creating spaces for young Black people to recognize that the pathway to Harvard is not necessarily a pathway to Black liberation. And I want the latter, not the former. It is not. That's right. I, we want the latter.
We want the latter. Yeah, I think about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We're not eating your food. We're not singing your song. Oh, you put us in the furnace? No problem. And say, wait a minute. We put three in there, and then there's four in there. One is like the child of God. Is that the son of God? In other words, what, are you, what do you believe, right? And I think about Black at Harvard. One of the things in the report, and they show in the film, is, you know, these young people are saying, I'm redefining what it means to be Black at Harvard. No, not really. You are not. I mean, with all due respect. Well, you didn't go to Harvard. Nope. Only time I've been on campus of Harvard, I paid my respects to John Harvard by spitting on his statue. I've tried to uh, leave some saliva on all of the great monuments. Cecil Rhodes at University of Cape Town. He, I can't do it anymore because black people said it, Rhodes must fall. So now I can't even go spit on that statue no more. But my point is this. Do you know the first Africans that came on that campus and slave people were African people? When Martin Delaney came there, you, you, you know better than Martin Delaney? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Martin Delaney. So you're not redefining what it means to be black. Now, Harvard has done a very good job of helping redefine what it means to be black, because in some ways, some of the tensions that we just we just been talking about existed hard between continental Africans and Africans from the Caribbean and Africans born in the United States. Some of this foolishness found its way. And I hope, you know, and, and I'm, I look forward to hearing the conversation you have with Sister Moore, Camila Moore, over the Reparations Task Force Commission in California, because, of course, they came down on the side of lineage saying that, you know, you have to prove that you have an enslaved ancestor in the United States to get reparations in California, which, of course, utterly absurd conceptually, as far as I'm concerned, but legally, as you know, better than I do. And that's why they had, and it's so funny to me, because they beat me up to say, oh, you agree with lineage? No, no, I agree with Dean Chemerinsky, who you had from Berkeley, who told you all what you, any lawyer or any law student or any legal scholar would know, which is that you can't, you won't be able to mount a, a repair of policy that can survive legal challenge either by the California state rep, uh, constitution because you let that fool war kindly in them mount that challenge. You got a proposition and now in California constitution, you can't, you can't use race. And in terms of a legal challenge, you won't be able to survive it there. So you can't say race, at least till we get some judges with some sense on because it ain't in the constitution that you can't. It's these judges that did it. But so Chemerinsky said in his testimony he said now this is not what i would prefer i'm just the messenger i'm just telling y'all what might be able to survive so some of these reparations advocates say see you support lineage no this is a hobson's choice there is no good choice in fact the only good choice would be that you make the demand that you want and let the chips fall where they may look at your ancestors so when they say well we're defining what it means to be black at harvard redefining not really not really and in fact this is where I said, going back to the rec to the recommendations, this recommendation of establishing these uh, these networks with HBCUs. This uh, 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 recommendation three in the Harvard plan, develop enduring partnerships with black colleges and universities. When I first came to Howard, I had a lot of exchange students. These are students, as, as you say, I mean, you spent what what a year in DR. And what you described three reminds me we were in South Africa one time. I was in South Africa with some students, and we were in a, a little shop on Rondebosch Road in Cape Town. And there were two young ladies, young women, I would say late teens, early 20s, college age, same age as my students. They were from Rwanda, displaced, you know, in the wake of the conflicts that were going on there at the time, or in the wake of those conflicts. And we were sitting there and they, and we were having a conversation about being black folk, which is fascinating to me. Anytime you take black folk other place, let's have these conversations. Young people have these conversations. And 
they were convinced, Lurie, that Beyonce was not black. For, for some of the same cultural logics that you just articulated in the DR. Skin color. They said, said you from America? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beyonce. Yeah, Beyonce. She's not black. No. What is she? She's colored. Because these children had grown up in South Africa where that foolishness that try, you know, white, colored, black, right? And so we said, no, she's black. Just like you told that brother. You said, no, you black. I'm black. You black. He couldn't, pro they couldn't, but they were not South African. This is what happened. As we're having this conversation, a, a young sister comes in who would be considered colored in South Africa, but black here. One of the girls looks at one of the girls is with us, and I'm saying girls, these are all 19, 20 year olds. And she said, so Beyonce, she's black. Yeah. Eh. Then she looks at this young lady that just came in, who in that society would be considered colored, which means what, better than this girl who was working in the store? She said, eh, she would be black too. We said, yeah. These two girls bust out laughing. The girl that came in, who's probably used to a racial hierarchy, looks utterly confused. Why? Because in that moment, these two young people who have been trained to believe they are less than, they in last place are looking at her like, you can't never come in here again and lord it over us because our cousins from over in the Atlantic, you know that place we all want to go? Hierarchy. Just told us we all black. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a moment I will never forget. But anyway, <laughs> and she said, she, her too. she would be black too. <laughs> they all start because and the tragedy, and this is what Randy Matori gets into. The tragedy of that though is that that laughter is the internalized self-hatred. Mm. This is the intent. When I hear Biggie say black and ugly as ever, that's what Randy Matori said. Yeah, you you know words, no, you're coming back to us. What is us? Us is less than you can't right. escape us. You ain't no better than we are. Exactly. Because we are still defined as less than they. And when we think about the fact that, you know, you said, because America, that place we all want to go, we forget that we all on a plantation. America just happens to be one of the more prized plantations. Like if you got to be on, if you have to be on the international scale, because one thing I will say about being in the Dominican Republic, I very much appreciated that uh, the way race played out here, that one drop rule, it kind of works in the reverse in Latin America. Uh, here, you know, one drop of black blood, you're black. There, one drop of white blood, ah, you questionable you know if you got enough money you can block it me and throw your way on out a whole lot of blackness it's questionable it's it's malleable but this idea that you are no better than us and us is still less than they so who mm. would you think you were in the first place? Because none of us are better. But then thinking about even in America, we have this hierarchy and the diaspora wars bear this out as well. The hierarchies, all of which still center approximation to whiteness. So even as we're healing, even as we're repairing Harvard, it's still within the confines of whiteness. There you go. Mm. And that's what we have to challenge. That's what we have to clear the space. And that's why we're so fortunate to have Nubia and to have narrative to, to now to join those previous e efforts and those other efforts going on now all over the world where we can do this. And that's, oh, you're right. I mean, the, the whole idea of being less than, and as you say, it's one global plantation and some like John Harvard's plantation are considered to be the preferred plantations. And some folk are good white folks. I mean, when Kasula talks about the mayors and those who had them enslaved, and he says, you know, 
they were good. What does good mean? They didn't whip us every day. And I'm thinking about that watching the conference yesterday at Harvard and reading the report and thinking, you know, and this is why I think it's important what uh, Annette Gordon-Reed said. Annette Gordon-Reed, professor in, in the law school history, brilliant sister, written so much important work. She'd done a lot of the work on um, Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings, the Hemingses of Monticello, several books, in fact. But professor um, Reed, Gordon-Reed, says she was on the committee that considered what to do with this seal from the Harvard Law School, which has its roots in enslavement. The recommendation of the commission that they put together at HLS, Harvard Law School, was to change the seal. She didn't agree. In the little film that they did, which is a companion to the Harvard report, she says, why? She says, uh, I didn't agree. I think it should stay there as a reminder because I don't want anybody to forget. I saw here, you sis. I'm not mad at you on that. In other words, what y'all not gonna do? You dump a hundred million dollars in, you do some work here and there, you now give yourself credit for being so self-flagellating, and Veritas becomes that much more powerful. Absolutely, absolutely. And this this is this is the question. Oh man. Larry, come on back in. This is the question because I'm not saying don't go to Harvard. Right. Saying, you know, I'm not saying do what you want to do. However, at some point when you said that it is easier to, you know, create strong children, make strong children than it is to, re to, to repair broken people, broken women, broken men. For those of us who can make that deliberate choice to break that change, Jacob Carruthers talks about the links our ideas to other people's ideas and speak to ourselves without interpreters. We have made a triumph. For our children, we want to relieve them of that. But ultimately, I'm wondering two things. Number one, can we ever relieve our children and our children's children and the future of that burden without us confronting that very real thing that Annette Gordon-Reed confronted in the room, which is if you get rid of this, Mm. My child, my aspire, and your ultimate goal is to get past it. This comes up over and over again. We want to remember. We have to remember. We have to atone. And now we want to think toward the future. Nah, we see what y'all did there. You are irredeemable as an institution. Well, possibly. I don't know what you. What do you think about I me? Mean, how do we, <laughs> What does it look like? Who the people? Those of us who break that chain. Do we have traditions we can draw on of chain breakers that said, nah, we'll deal with you, but only after we've built a place of strength, we can deal with you from. See, okay, so Brother Card, this is one of the reasons that I really do think that we should study Maroons as much, if not more so, than we study free Black people. So I, I just was reading <clears throat> with my audience uh, Amina Lukman Dawson's Free Water. And it's a fictional account of these young children who are trying to escape with their mom. They end up getting separated from their mother. But they, they instead of going north, which was the only concept of freedom they had, they stumble into the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, they're rescued by this amazing brother, Suleiman, who is this, uh, he's a superhero. Of, I mean, he's make, he is the, like the prototype of Black Panther. He's amazing. Uh, they encounter all, this entire hidden community with sky bridges so that people don't have to walk on the ground with secret pathways that if you don't know it, you're going to get real hurt up thinking you walking just on grass. You're going to walk on something that's going to cut you and might kill you. They end up in this free community, this maroon community, where their entire existence 
was they were surrounded by hostile white territory who didn't know quite where they were, knew they were there somewhere, but couldn't quite figure it out. But their existence was not the same as a free black existence, a free black existence. And, and please push back on this because I'm, I'm, I'm learning, I'm, I'm exploring this for the first time. But the free black experience to me felt like we are not enslaved and we might be black, but we're respectable. Come and on. we're upstanding citizens and we are going to make this system work. Whereas the Maroons was like, who is you? Like, <laughs> we, have to be, we have to go. We can't get back home. Right. We know we have been altered and shaped and we have an imprint of something on us that we didn't have when we came here. But what we cannot do is conceptualize of living free amongst you. We must create our own independent spaces with our own governance structure our yeah. own social structure, yeah. our own patterns and ways of doing, our own security system, and they had a security system, our own ability to raise our children without the infection of internalized white supremacy. And I feel like if we studied Maroons, and the Maroons were not perfect. We know that they, you know, there's a, a complicated history there. It's, it's not, you know, just one story of victory and, and successful, you know, elimination of whiteness. Right. It's a struggle, but I feel like we would have more tools to answer that question if we studied maroon societies who had the same need to exist within hostile territory, but they did it without using integration within this system as the pathway to the safest reality that they could create. They right. created their own. They had a coup, they, they embodied Kuji Chagalia in a very different way. And I feel like if we studied that more, we would be able to answer your question more effectively. I, I agree. That's what, that's the whole point of the governance question. Who are we to each other? And you're right. I mean, we're human, so we're not going to have uh, we're not going to have a perfect society. And well, the first thing that you know, as you describe the narrative and describe this conversation, particularly anchored in the Great Dismal Swamp and the character of Suleiman, it reminds me of again. And he is he is mentioned in the Harvard report. Martin Delaney, who went to the medical school in the 1850s, and the white students went to Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the father of the Supreme Court judge, who was the dean of the medical school, and said, either, either Delaney and the other two Negroes you let in go, or we go. And they put Delaney and these other two brothers out of the medical school. But what is not mentioned in the Harvard report is that Martin Delaney, although they say he was a great abolitionist, no, Martin Delaney was about black self-determination. In 1859, he published a novel in serial form in a black newspaper called The Anglo-African called Blake or the Huts of America where he has this hero at the center. Blake is like the, to me, anybody asks, well, you know, in the 19th century, we had slave narratives. And so if you haven't read Blake, don't read nobody. Or don't read Frederick Douglass. Don't read Harriet Jacobs. Blake or the Huts of America, 1859, Martin Robeson Delaney, not mentioned in the Harvard report. In fact, Henry Louis Gates, in that New Yorker uh, interview I mentioned, uh, the guy asked him, says, uh, could you give us some books to read? And he gives all these books. And I'm, I just looked down the list, laughing at the list. And I said, I know Blake ain't on here. And it wasn't on there. Why? Because Blake is a maroon story. The guy escapes enslavement in the South, comes back, gets his parents, gets them north, then spends time in the Great Dismal Swamp. He goes through the Caribbean. He gets on a boat working backward toward Africa, makes a deal with the Africans to get black people to return, comes back over, comes then to Cuba. All this is in a novel in 1859. Also a love story, because every time he goes back, he has been uh, forced to leave his wife, who he loves, and children. So he's going looking for her, finds her. I mean, all of this is in the novel, right? And so people say, well, I've never heard of Blake. There's a reason. Why? It's maroonage. 
Marunage, as they call it. And as you say, Larry, I mean, it's not perfect. There's grand marunage, petite marunage, as some of the scholars talk about. In other words, little marunage is when you spit in the food. Maybe inter intermediate maroonage is like in uh, at Montpelier in Virginia, where the Igbo women probably poisoned and killed James Madison's grandfather. That's in Doug Chambers' book, Murder at Montpelier. We not we can't go back home, but we can kill you and make a deal with your wife. This is the thing that blew my mind. They put them on trial. The women are found not guilty because the wife of the man they killed lets them now walk around the plantation free. The whole thing has a gender dimension because the white woman is like, I ain't like this shit anyway. If you kill him, then I'm going to let y'all go. I mean, you see these black women negotiate. This is kind of inner. And then, of course, Grand Marinage is like where Karen is right now, the Blue Mountains of Jamaica. They, blow, they go up there and the British say, we can't catch y'all. We just make a deal. If anybody escapes to you, you bring it back. Bring them back. And they say, Marines say, you will bring them back. But they don't bring them back. <laughs> so, I mean, or the Great Dismal Swamp. You ain't going to chase us in the Dismal Swamp because you... So if we study the elements of Marinage, there are Maroons at Harvard. But it's petite Marinage. In other words, I think some of y'all on this committee, you're petite, but you on John Harvard's plantation. What you're not going to do in recommendation three, this is what bothers me, and I want you to jump in on this. It, what you're not going to do is leave Harvard and go to Grambling. What you're not going to do is leave Harvard and go to Mega Evers or Chicago State. What you're not going to do is go to L.A. Southwest Community College. And, you know, no, because you want that Harvard imprimatur. So your maroonage, even your protesting, is confined by your aspiration. He said, well, I don't want to be white. I know you don't want to be white, but you don't want to give up the benefits of whiteness either. And this is what Randy Matori is talking about. You want to avoid last place. You are black, but you ain't one of us blacks. And this third recommendation, this is where I was going with it. When I came to Howard, they used to have exchange students. What I noticed, and then finally I asked one of these young people, I think uh, she was at Davidson College in North Carolina. We were having conversations. I remember I had young people from Berkeley, University of Chicago. Those schools, and I don't know Berkeley might have been one of them, they stopped doing the semester exchange. They stopped letting, because one of the things they recommend in the Harvard report you know, Harvard students can go to HBCUs for a semester. HBCU students can come to Harvard for a semester. Harvard faculty can go to HBCUs for a semester or a year. HBCU faculty can come to, and I'm thinking it's part of $100 million going to address the extreme uh, salary disparity because I know damn well that you can't put them uh, Harvard salaries into the HBCU budgets because that'll take up all the damn money. But, but let me come back and ask you this question. What, do, why do you think Many of these schools, and Harvard's saying they got to do it because they don't do it right now. Why do you think many of these schools stopped doing some domestic uh, some uh, um, exchange semesters with the black students who wanted to go to HBCUs? I would imagine they came back tearing shit up. That is possibly true, but let me ask you: You're Harvard. You do a you do a semester. You do your spring semester at Spelman. You stay at Spelman, you there for like three, four, five months. You do it now. It's fall and you got to go back to Cambridge. What are you thinking? Man, do I miss seeing all them black people around me. This feels like a cold, cruel world in comparison no, to the warm sun. I'm with my gospel choir at Penn State. We did a uh, HBCU tour. We was oh. like, man, we got a whole lot at Penn State, but we ain't got this food. We ain't got this love. This feels like home. Hey. And yes, I know there's a difference between the resources, but this feels 
healthy. No this question. feels good. And this does not feel cold, alien, and quite frankly, dangerous the way the Penn State campus did. No question. And look, shout out, respect to you, because, you know, I went to Ohio State for law school. And then the Big Ten, you, you know, as a special relationship, Black people had to survive the Big Ten. So, and shout out, though, to Happy Valley, because the times I've been there, you know, my, my one of my jagnas, uh, Charles Bloxon, has his second collection there in the Robeson Center. Y'all did incredible work at Penn State. Black people fought like hell at Penn State students. <laughs> so, God bless, man. You know, and, and we just lost uh, uh, Larry Young. No! Yes. See, we when? just the word or, to, uh, earlier this week. I just got the word from some of my oh. comrades that he made transition. And Larry Young, when he was the, yes, you can have that, Mama. Shh, mommy's on the thing. Um, he uh, was so instrumental at protecting us. Mm. He was so instrumental at, uh, at holding on to the legacy of, of Paul Robeson and that center when we took over the building, when they killed that black man, when the Klan and white supremacist groups were doing everything they was doing. And we ended up forcing the hand of the university and all of that. Larry Young and the legacy of the Paul Robeson Cultural Center in that space. That was, I guess, a bit of the marunage that you speak about. Absolutely. Mm. The first time I met Lawrence Young was uh, they came, all the Black Cultural Center directors, of course, he being one, in fact, not only being one of, but one of the seniors, one of the real groundbreaking founders of those, those Black Cultural Centers were, and we used to say this at Ohio State, you know, uh, those of us who were HBCUs, who came up to Ohio State, because of a man named Frank Hill, who was the president of Oakwood, who had come to Ohio State, we said, the Black Cultural Centers at white schools are the HBCU elements of the white schools. And Larry Young was one of the leaders and he came to the conference. They had the National Conference of Black Culture Center Directors. And I'll never forget the reverence with which those other directors looked at Lawrence Young. And he was on my mind a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking about Fred Lee Horde in Kentucky and Chester Grundy and Autumn. I'm thinking, I wonder what Larry Young is doing. And now I know why. He made transition. Yeah, we just got the word this week and it, yeah. Yeah, you got to raise the name of Lawrence Young, director yes. of the Paul Robeson Culture Center at Penn State, one of the founders of that Black Culture Center movement. Um, and that is the Maroonage. And you're absolutely right. Because for many Black students who did domestic exchange, if they didn't have a Black Culture Center, if they didn't, or even if they did, they would come to the HBCU. They would come to Howard. And after that semester they spend, when it came time to go back, they'd be like, I'm good. I'm transferring. So many students were transferring. Those schools stopped doing domestic exchange. So Harvard now, we're going to do domestic exchange. Yeah, because we think our brand, to quote Desus and Miru, is strong enough to survive. Let's test it. <laughs> Let them kids come for a semester. Now, I have colleagues who probably will, their dream would be at Harvard. And, I, I, you know, that's fine. I don't want to mess up nobody's dream. My dream, you know both of us, a whole bunch of us could have been a whole lot of different places, but you have to break. This is why I asked you a question. You know, at what point do we break that chain so that our children can see? Because last time I was on Penn State's campus, I guess they named the whole complex Robeson. Is that it? That's the new building. The Robeson building. Yeah. And oh, you know, to be honest with you, I've only gone back once or twice in the decades since, but I can't stand. <laughs> I to, we literally left under the protection of armed guard of the new Black Panther Party because we were trying to kill us. So I, I have a very um, antagonistic relationship with my alma mater. No question. Look, this, look, look, sis, this is what I'm saying. This is why we had that movement and memory category. Penn State, you don't now get to get credit for being progressive. You tried to kill us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So now you're going to put that in your history like this was a, and so we 
as Penn State. No, hell no. Y'all see what y'all doing? I mean, because when I walked in the building, my first thing was, this ain't Larry Young's. And I'm like, y'all got Paul Rosen name on this. In fact, I'll tell you when it was, Larry, this is crazy. However many years ago this has been, maybe seven, eight, nine years ago, I forget now. It was the same week they took that statue down of Joe Paterno. I got there the day before because I wanted to see this shit before they got rid of it. You know what I'm saying? Because this is what Annette Gordon-Reed is saying. Don't Y'all going to try to erase this, you know, scary Jerry, all these people. There. But I went in the building like, damn, this is nice. I said, but this ain't the place, Larry Young. <laughs> y'all y'all put Paul, after what y'all did to Robeson <laughs> at Rutgers and what y'all did to Charles Bloxson at Penn State. Which I did. Now y'all put Paul Rosen's name on a whole ass complex, and then I went looking for the black corner. I'm going upstairs. I'm like, oh, this is the black, and I'm looking at the multicultural row, and I'm saying, yeah. And then I found Mr. Bloxon's room. That's okay. I'm at home now here. But those maroon spaces are real, and I guess where I'm going with it is when we were talking Monday night, like we're in week, we're in week two now. We got two more weeks of a bear coon to do. When I decided jumped in from from london and helped us walk through some of the yoruba dimensions of barracoon realizing that everybody on that ship the clotilda was not uh, uh was not yoruba we talked about central nigeria we uh, read through some parts and talked about natalie robeson's book the clotilda slave ship clotilda because they're they're making an african before they even get put on the boat because of the complicity of these africans who are over there in Wida and the dahomey africans who are bringing them into this criminal enterprise but at any rate he said something Monday. I want, I want to get your feedback on the thoughts about this. And this is um, this is um, Adesoje. He says, we, and somebody already said in the chat early on when we started. He said, um, you know, reading this, listening, having this conversation, the thing occurs to me. We asked, what can we do? And Africa Town is still there. Chief Lewis is here right now. He's all, he don't never miss no. We talk. He said, um, what did Kasula want? What do you mean? What do you want? He keep telling Zora, you call my name Kasula. They call me Kujo around here. He told the white man, the white man, he said the white man had a hard time pronouncing my name. There it is. The social structure. I can't pronounce your name, so I'm going to give you a nickname. So Kasula asked the white man, he said, uh, you own me, right? White man said, yeah. He said, well, then you can call me Kujo. Then he tells Zora, but my mama calls me Kasula. In other words, the governance question. In other words, you don't even get to use my name. I don't even want you calling my name. You can call me Cujo. So anyway, I started to say this. He keeps saying to her, when she comes in, the first time she comes in in Barracoon, he says, oh, Lord, I know it was you because you called my name and it made me feel like I was in Africa land. He says, she said, I want to take your picture. He said, oh, let me take my shoes off. Why? Because I want my feet to be on the ground because it makes me think I'm in Africa. When Adesoje said this, it blew all our minds. I know it blew my mind. He said, what did that man want? He wanted to go home. They tried to raise money. This week, we're going to talk about them trying to raise money. They couldn't go. He said, so why isn't he in Africa? Why don't y'all take Kasula home? The man told you what he wanted. He's buried in Mobile, Alabama. And at the moment, the whole thing, I was like, damn. It's not too late. At least take some dirt from the grave or a piece of his property. This man said, I want to go home. The war was over. We free? Well, let's go. He went to the white man and said, you going to you gonna let us go home? Talk about repair. Talk about repair. Them enslaved Africans at Harvard, do you really think they want their names on the damn buildings? They want their names on a wall? 
You took them. Now, I know y'all ain't going to leave Harvard. You love it too much. You know you love it. You know you love it. You know you love Harvard. You know you. In your heart. Just like that man told you, uh, Larry. In my heart, I am white. <laughs> I'm the whitest. <laughs> you know you love Harvard. But if you're going to start talking about the legacy of slavery, are we? Are you serious right now? But those Africans who love Kasula, and I, what do you think about that in terms of the question of repair? Is repair possible? This man was very simple. I want to go home. Here we are. He's still buried in Alabama. Uh, there was something I had read once where it was in formerly enslaved people saying that they wanted to kill the white man and go home. Come on. That, that's what they wanted. Like, if you like kill the white man and go home. And it wasn't kill the white man. We need vengeance. It was like, no, this is a blight. This has been a virus. We must eradicate the harm and the, the, the projectors of the harm. We want to go home. And I've been sort of working with this idea for a little while that our addiction to whiteness should be treated like addiction. Come on. In the same way that if I were addicted to any narcotic, any alcohol, and Alcoholics Anonymous gives us kind of a framework for this, right? It's a recognition that once I become addicted, I am forever going to be in a place where I am victimized by that or I am impacted by that. So I can't go to the bar and just think I'm not going to be triggered. Of course, I'm going to be triggered. I have an addiction. I need these 12 steps as a lifelong journey to help me deal with the lifelong addiction and the imprint that I now have. And I always felt like, you know, prior to Alcoholics Anonymous being created, being an, an alcoholic, well, you were, you were of poor repute. It was, you know, you were just uh, reputational. You just had bad moral habits. You were just a bad person. But then once we had Alcoholics Anonymous kind of give us a medicinal language for it mm. and then create these pathways where people could be in this lifelong process and journey towards recovery, I I've always kind of thought about our addiction to whiteness in that way. It is an addiction. It requires an ongoing, we need, uh, we need white supremacist anonymous. Like we need some system that would allow yeah. us to process through that addiction while, you know, creating what we got to create. You know, if you were a part of Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't stop living, you don't stop building, but you have to have access to this system. You go online anywhere, any zip code you type in, you know, there's going to be a meeting in some church basement where you can go and get the help you need when your triggers start to show up. And when Dr. Joy DeGruy wrote uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, for me, it created a framework where we could now say this is a we have some medicinal language that we can think about and we can create some ways of helping us to navigate that addiction to whiteness. That's going to keep me at Harvard because I do love it. Like, you know, you know, I, I, just, I didn't do, you know, in my, you know what I mean? So like, but we can deal with that system, create that, that white supremacist anonymous healing trajectory, which might be a lifelong journey. But when we have children. Perhaps when they see us going through that process, we can help them so that their addiction doesn't take root quite as strong and the successive generations addiction don't take root quite as strong because we will have the language to speak on this thing, to articulate this thing, create safe spaces like narrative where we can grow through this thing in a way that I feel like could help. I agree. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And those of you who are watching this later, who are not yet a newbie or not yet there, this is the work we're doing. We're not alone in it, but it's a new space that is inviting people who have been doing this work to join with people who have not yet begun doing this work. I love the way you frame that. That is not how to be an anti-racist, which is important work for the social structure. You talking governance. How do we recover? Because even saying what you've just said would be considered an act of war against the social structure. The Harvards of the world want to maintain their power, maintain their hierarchy, and it would be absurd to think that it would be any different. Of course they do. This is Harvard. They want to stay Harvard. 
and they want to improve yes i mean the whole report opens with the motto of harvard is veritas in order for really to be veritas we must acknowledge no in order for it to be really veritas you might shut down operations and disperse the 52 billion but you ain't gonna do that why because the truth the the veritas is <laughs> you know that you have a hierarchy you want to maintain and you'll let more negroes in and as we know they're getting ready to get rid of affirmative action we're using Harvard as the battering ram, these white boy billionaires, because there's too many Asians up there. They're already crying for affirmative action of the place for whiteness. So now they're getting ready to fix that. But what you're raising, that is what, that's the direction we have to go in. I mean, as we kind of wrap it up for today, I'm thinking in the Harvard report, I'm thinking about people who made that choice not to come into that space. Who are narrated in the Harvard report again? There was another piece I was reading in in, in the New Yorker. Uh, this is very recent, and I forget who uh, wrote it. But he's talking about Edward Gibbons, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and he says Gibbons was sitting there as a young man in Rome, in the among the ruins, watching these uh, monks chanting, and he said, "That's when I decided I wanted to know what happened to this society." And he opens the essay with that to make the point that all history is just narratives. We make decisions. As you said, if you're going to talk about our enslavement in the Western Hemisphere, you must start with the Spanish. 1619, is a, 1619 isn't even about enslavement. 1619 is about the social structure you want to be integrated in and you want to attach it to the British because you speak English. So if you go back before that, you got a problem. Why? Because that's not the society you want to be a part of. And that's not a criticism. Nicole Ann Jones is a friend. I saw her down at the African-American Museum last week. I understand the thrust. We live in that society, but it's a form, I suppose, of maybe a, a gesture toward petite marinage, but it's not the type of thing you're talking about. It reinforces the addiction because you're addicted to whiteness, to white supremacy. You're addicted. And so I guess, I guess what, where I'm going, going with that is when you walk away from that, you disappear. So even looking at the narrative that this Harvard report kind of creates, these decisions it made to really tell a story that brandishes itself, that kind of reinforces this notion of professional professional managerial class, uh, to use Catherine Liu's work uh, on the professional managerial class, that reinforces this notion of almost virtue, virtue hoarding in a sense. It picks out these blacks at Harvard, the Charles Hamilton Houston's, the, um, the W.E.B. Du Bois's and others, the Martin Delaney's. And when it mentions Eva Beatrice Dykes, immediately I did two things. I go to the footnotes. I want to see who you're quoting for the source. I didn't see this source. This is uh, DeWitt Williams. DeWitt Williams uh, was the director, associate director of health and temperance department of the general conference of the Seventh-day Adventist church, Black Seventh-day Adventist. He, many years working with, uh, with um, Oakwood College in Alabama, the Seventh-day Adventist HBCU. This is his biography of uh, Eva B. Dykes. She fulfilled the impossible dream. He's written a book more recently on Dykes and the other two sisters, including uh, Sadie Tanner Alexander, the first three black women to get PhDs in the United States. Eva Beatrice Dykes from DC was the first woman of African descent to get a P, well, to, to finish her work for a PhD. The graduation ceremony took place after the other two. She was born in 1893 in DC, went to M Street School, which of course we know as Paul Lawrence Dunbar. We talked about Dunbar a lot. Uh, she taught for a while, uh, Warden uh, University in Nashville, Tennessee, my hometown. She went to Harvard to get a master's in English. Her undergrad degree at Howard was English. Magna cum laude, top of her class, English major, went to Harvard. They told her, uh, that Negro college, 
Yeah, we don't count the HBCUs. You got to start all over again. So she got a bachelor. She got another bachelor's degree from Radcliffe, and then got a master's degree from Radcliffe in English, and then finished the PhD. She came back. She taught at Dunbar High School. Then she was on the faculty at Howard. This is around 1929. She was on the faculty at Howard for a number of years, and then. She had joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church around 1920. So she was in her 20s when she joined. She then decided, I'm leaving Howard. I'm going to the Seventh-day Adventist HBCU. I'm going to Oakwood in Alabama. Everybody thought she was crazy. The president of Howard, Mordecai Johnson, the first black president. What? You would leave Howard? Howard is the black Harvard. <laughs> and says, uh, you would go, what, what? She said, I'm Seventh-day Adventist. My faith calls me. Your faith. You're the first black woman to quality to finish her requirements for a PhD in the country. You came out of Harvard. Harvard. The uh, her maroonish was based in black spirituality, black ways of knowing, her seventh-day Adventist tradition. Now, remember earlier I mentioned Frank Hale, who was Seventh-day Adventist president of that school that Eva Dykes was, who knew Eva Beatrice Dykes. Frank Hale left Oakwood, came to Ohio State, and started the Black Graduate and Professional Visitation Days, where the top five students at every HBCU that wanted to participate would be sent to Ohio State, and Ohio State would try to recruit them for graduate and professional school. That's why I ended up going to Ohio State, because my Jagnas, Jamie and McDonald Williams, had gone to Ohio State in the 40s, and Frank Hale was there telling Black students, you went to an HBCU undergrad, come get this license, go with God. And we did that. I'll never forget the day they put the application for Harvard Law School in my hand and said, what about Harvard? I said, Jamie and McDonald Williams didn't go to Harvard. I said, but Harvard is better than Ohio State. I said, they got a law school, yeah. Ohio State got a law school, right? Yeah. Frank Hale is there, right? Yeah. They got a bunch of black people there, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, I'll go into Ohio State. You're not even going to apply to Harvard? Why would I apply? I don't want to go there. Then looking back, people would say, why didn't you do that? I said, I don't give a damn about Harvard. I told y'all what I did the first time I was on John Harvard's plantation campus. My point is this. In that notion, Eva Dykes goes to Oakwood, spends the rest of her life. When she made transition in 1986 at the age of 93, we understand that Eva Beatrice Dykes engaged in an act of self-determination. In a form of reparations, she did not become a visiting fellow at Oakwood sent by Harvard. Now, was she trapped by segregation? For sure. But by the time her life had come to an end there in Alabama, Eva Beatrice Dykes had given her life to Black people beginning in an apartheid system and making transition after the apartheid system was, was over. And just reading about her in the Harvard report, her relationship is a relationship to Harvard. I checked the footnotes. DeWitt Williams is not mentioned. They do mention this book that Eva Dykes did with uh, the great Lorenzo Dow Turner and Artelia Cromwell, readings from Negro authors for schools and colleges with a bibliography of Negro literature published by Harcourt Brace in New York. This was published in 1931 says the purpose of this volume is not to present another anthology of Negro literature, but to offer for classroom study or supplemental reading a selection of types of writing by Negro authors. I'm saying this was a book that was used in the segregated black schools, readings from Negro authors, 1931. My point is they mentioned this in the Harvard report. The page they scanned, the one I just showed you all, they show a picture of it, it's from the Radcliffe archives. Why? Because they're showing the stuff they have at Harvard and Radcliffe. 
one of the recommendations is they talk about developing enduring partnerships with HBCUs. They want to digitize stuff that's at black colleges to set, to protect the legacy, to protect or to colonize. Y'all ain't, what they say in It's a Wonderful Life, Potter's not selling, Potter's buying. In other words, you are going to use this legacy of slavery reckoning moment to enhance your brand. I ain't scanning shit. Or if I do scan it, we're going to retain it intellectual property and you aren't you know, to use it without our permission. Can we do that? Well, you got $100 million. Oh, you're going to double the $2 million you're going to use? Okay, well, okay, we'll share. We'll share the intellectual property. This is how colonization works. It's intellectual warfare. And because, as you say, Larry, we are addicted to whiteness, we might look at this as a privilege instead of raising the money, getting our own scanners and controlling our intellectual property. Harvard is not interested in losing its place in the hierarchy. It just wants to get credit for being more humane. <laughs> I mean, anyway. And I feel like the only thing that disrupts that is our willingness or the lack thereof to participate. That's right. So as we heal us on our terms, they become, as one of the basketball wives said many, many years ago, a non-mother effing factor. No. They become a non-factor. Once we are healing, no once and, and again, I, I, I struggle with the use of addiction because I know like addiction indicates I chose this thing as a and to participate in this thing. And this is not something we chose. This is something we were forced into. But if we were healing and if we were healthy and if we had our, you know, every week, I know I go to my, you know, my white supremacy or my, my pro blackness healing or whatever you want to call it. I don't even want to center whiteness <laughs> in the name. But as I'm going to my AA for my whiteness addiction. The more I heal, the less powerful a liquor store becomes, the less power over my life the bar has, because I am in a process of proactively, consistently healing, not in isolation, but in a group therapeutic session. And the more I commit to that, the less power the source of my addiction actually has. So it don't matter what Harvard does. And I'm about to be on a call with a bunch of my sister friends who well, all went to Harvard. <laughs> no, we got we got we know we know no no it's what it is. But the more that we heal, the less power they have to matter. They become non-factors. Their institutions become non-factors because what? Why would I even apply? I have no intention on wasting. Why would I even consider that? I'm not going to waste the ink, nor the stamp, the postage, none of it, because that's not, it's a non-factor for me nope. because I'm healing over here. I'm right. building over here and I'm not trying to be a free black, Ooh. although I respect the free blacks. There's a role for the free blacks. <laughs> I'm, I'm engaged in marunage in a way that allows me to be truly Kuji Chagalia self-determining. Yes. I want that more than I want Harvard. And so long as we get enough of us to want that more than we want to be on the best plantation ever, and to, to be higher up in the echelon of the best plantation ever, uh, then I think that's where our repair comes. That ain't a repair that they can give us. No, it's not. They it's can't not. give us that repair. That's only mm -hmm. something we can give to ourselves. That's right. No, this is beautiful. I mean, you know, it's a new book, uh, Derek Gray. And don't, don't go on. We're going to close now. He just wrote a book. I just got a call. The NAACP in Washington, D.C. He's an archivist at the People's Archive, the Martin Luther King Library here in D.C. And one of the points he makes is that the uh well my friend Der actually Derek Musgrove uh who wrote the, the forward one of the things Derek talks about is that the NAACP never tried to develop a relationship in DC and many other places really with the black masses 
So that the whole narrative of NAACP, you said, although the black mass is hell, it wasn't really. So even now, there's there's a conference they just did yesterday at Troutbeck, which was uh, Spingarn's retreat in upstate New York, where they had this, and they talking about this history has been lost, and we got to talk about all the black leaders that he brought up here, and that's really, he helped the NAACP form. And when you read a book like Born Along the Color Line, what you realize is, again, white philanthropy wanting to direct the way that we have black progress. So the NAACP, like you said, this kind of elite Negro, okay, yes, y'all part of the community, but you're not going to dictate the terms of how we move if we understand that the we has to be built with all of us. Henry Gates says something in the interview again. He says, one of the things I teach in my intro class, African States class, is that there are 42 million black people in this country, which means there are 42 million different ways of being black. And I said, there's the line. And this is why I don't mess with Henry Louis Gates. Brilliant, a lot of important work, but that attitude right there is what allows you to hide. And you are in conclusion, and I, I encourage you, please, don't even, that is the language. You are addicted, sir, to whiteness, as are all of us in some, one way or the other, but your addiction, you want to hide it under you representing black people. And no, Larry, I don't think it was a choice. I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, and you probably covered this on your show earlier in the week. The feds are talking about now uh, removing the capacity for people to sell menthol cigarettes. Well, we know that one of the reasons black people are addicted to menthol, we I think they said we smoke almost 90% of all the menthol cigarettes in this country. It isn't because we chose that addiction. Beginning in the 50s and 60s, these companies, Newports, are named for Newport, where the Newport jazz festival was they just got bought out by Reynolds. the the brand is tobacco cools the ebony magazine jet magazine it was all advertising the same thrust that had us drinking pepsi instead of coke that had us drinking sprite when they started but all the flavored drinks manny maribel talks about it and how capitalism underdeveloped america our addictions were put upon us we didn't choose those addictions <laughs> you know what i'm saying so i encourage you sis we are addicted and this, this report just reinforces the addiction because we act like this is progress when in fact, uh, I'm going I'm to I'm stop there because we could go on and on. And thank you. I mean, thank you. Let me give you the last word, sis, because we're we going to close out. And I'm just glad you're here. I hope we could, we, we got to do this again quickly. Listen, and it's always such a blessing to talk to you. Like it just, it just absolutely is. I know that Karen right now, I hope she is somewhere being replenished, being poured into, yes. being fulfilled. Because when you do the work of creating those healing spaces, when you're being the doctor and patient, as you well know, at the same time, oh. it, it wears even on you, even yeah. in addition to the thing that you are trying to, to create, to, to heal from. So I've, I've just been blessed by this conversation. I, I tried as hard as I could to stay connected with the Nubia chat. I'm sorry, y'all. I couldn't. It was too many. Too, I was too into the, hearing what Brother Carr had to say. No, no, I, I'm used to, I, I go back and look because I'm listening to you. This this conversation. Yeah. And thank you, Karen. Yeah. I hope you somewhere either not listening or <laughs> about to turn this off so you can get back in that water and do what you're doing. Laurie, this is this is a blessing, sis. This is a blessing. I can't. Mm, I can't tell you. I'm honored to be able to have this discussion. I'm. I'm, and I feel renewed in our ability to center our repair. Like so, as we're having this reparations conversation, I, and it is important, and it is, it must happen. It's a fight that should happen. But you know, Dr. Carr, if we had created, or if we create uh, our own circuitous economic structures, and we capture a good 
you know, 10, 15, 20% of the one point, however many trillions of dollars we spend every year within our own communities, we would have enough funds to, to repair ourselves and we wouldn't have to ask anybody for anything. And I think what I'm taking from this conversation is until we do that anyway, any reparations or reparative framework is going to be incomplete. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. Nubians, y'all just heard the word. So we're going to finish uh, with, with our next one. Now. We finished two Mondays from now. This Monday, we know we're now in the next section we're doing for Barracoon. This is where we get into the whole complexities. The, the you open the way for what we're going to say on, on Monday. So uh, everybody will see everybody on Monday. And then, uh, well, no, Sunday, Maroon's Medicine Chest with uh, Dr. Amon. So Dr. Amon. And then uh, we'll do Office Hours Monday night. Then Tuesday, the Metanetra class, Dr. Beatty. Some of y'all don't know what we're talking about. Uh, Elon Musk. We're not talking to you, bro. You don't control this. This, this, this. this right here. You see what I'm saying? It's a little different. So you tweak to your heart's content, bro. <laughs> so anyway, love you. Thank love you. Back, love you to the fam. Love, love you to the fam. <laughs> same, same, same.